Hello, my name is Paul Bateman. I'm Littler's Chief Inclusion, Equity, and Diversity Officer. I am pleased to have with me four of my fellow BOLO shareholders, Deoncia Johnson-Massey from Atlanta, Georgia, Lindbergh Porter from San Francisco, Latoya Mayo from Lexington, Kentucky, and Charles Wilson from Houston, Texas. As you know, on June 18th, our firm will be closed for observance of the Juneteenth holiday, which celebrates the end of slavery in the United States. Well, almost the end. We wanted to share with you the trail to Juneteenth and its importance in American history. Deoncia, can you tell us where does the trail to Juneteenth actually start? Paul, absolutely. I'm happy to share uh, where the trail starts. You know, one of my thoughts is that the political documents often reflect compromises made by people in positions of power and in the context of then current events. The Emancipation Proclamation issued on January 1st, 1863, really reflects those various compromises. And in that way, it is similar to other political documents. It is born out of the reality that the United States is in the midst of a bloody civil war where both Union and Confederate soldiers are dying in significant numbers. There was real concern that the United States defended by the Union Army could lose the war. The Union needed soldiers to help to defeat the Confederacy. When the Civil War began, there were nearly 4 million enslaved people of African descent in the United States. As lawyers, we know the importance of reading the documents in our cases. Reading is fundamental to understanding what a document means and what values are associated with its contents. So what does a close reading of the Emancipation Proclamation tell us? The first thing it kind of tells us is that the Emancipation Proclamation did not free all enslaved people in our country. In fact, it specifically states that only enslaved people living within states that are, quote, in rebellion against the United States, end quote, shall be free. This means only enslaved people in the states that has seceded from the United States would be free. So what did it mean for other enslaved people? Well, in all candor, it meant that enslaved people living in other states and jurisdictions like the border states of Kentucky, Missouri, Maryland, and Delaware, for example, would remain enslaved. In fact, the Emancipation Proclamation specifically indicates that as to those states, things shall be left precisely as if this proclamation were not issued. In reality, that meant that approximately 750,000 enslaved people in these states and jurisdictions would remain enslaved. But what the Emancipation Proclamation did do is that it paved the way for formerly enslaved people to also fight for the liberation of other enslaved people. To increase the Union's fighting force, 
the Emancipation Proclamation permitted formerly enslaved people to fight in the Union Army and Navy by stating specifically that such persons will be received into the armed service of the United States. Imagine what that meant to formerly enslaved people who understood that the freedom of other enslaved people depended on the Union's military victory. Liberation would occur when the Union Army arrived in Confederate states and jurisdictions to enforce the Emancipation Proclamation. Imagine that, enslaved people who were beaten mercilessly, were raped and required to breed more children for commercial purposes, who had their children and beloved family members and friends sold away from them, who had no legal protection for themselves or their loved ones, and who worked grueling hours under insanely harsh working conditions and without compensation, were now being relied upon as part of our country's army to free other enslaved people from those horrific conditions and in a real sense to save our democratic republic. By some estimates, 200,000 formerly enslaved black men fought for the union during the civil war representing 20% of all eligible black males. The Emancipation Proclamation was also foundational in shifting the paradigm of the way enslaved people were considered rather than focusing on them as chattel. Formerly enslaved people began to be seen, at least in this document, as humans with a measure of agency in two key respects. They have a right to defend themselves against violence. Specifically, the Emancipation Proclamation states that the people so declared to be free should abstain from violence unless in necessary self-defense. The other way this agency was recognized is an acknowledging that these newly freed people have the right to seek reasonable wages for their work. Imagine what that sense of agency meant in this foundational document. So Paul, those are my thoughts about the origins of the Emancipation Proclamation and what it means in each succeeding step with what our other panelists will be talking about. Thank you so much, Deoncia. You certainly have uh, shared some information with me that I know I didn't learn in elementary or high school as I was growing up here in the Chicago area. Lindbergh Porter, I know that you hail actually from one of the states that I believe is specifically mentioned in the Emancipation Proclamation originally. What are your insights, just based off this very textured, a description that Deoncia has shared with us with regard to the Emancipation Proclamation and the journey to Juneteenth. 
Uh, hi, Paul. Thank you. Uh, and I am taking a slightly divergent view uh, from Deontia in the sense of its impact in Mississippi, which you mentioned. The uh, fact of the Emancipation Proclamation, the fact of the 13th Amendment were not recognized until February of 2010, a few years ago, among the last states to remove from its books uh, and its laws enslavement. So the impact of the Emancipation Proclamation is very important to American history. Its actual impact, however, on people who were enslaved was minimal at best at the time. Juneteenth, which we are going to get to, was a long time coming here, and it was short-lived. The impact was somewhat symbolic. It certainly had the consequences, ultimately, that Deontia mentioned with 200,000 Black folk joining the Union. It had a psychological impact on the Confederacy and the soldiers of the Confederacy. It had a, an impact on those who held uh, enslaved people as chattel. It did not, the Emancipation Proclamation, did not offer compensation. It didn't offer payment, even fair trade. The effect was in part to hasten the war effort. It caused some other nations that had been veering towards supporting the Confederacy to back off that support. It caused, ultimately, the formal abolition of uh, slavery in the United States in the form of the 13th Amendment because the president's exercise of wartime powers was what enabled the Emancipation Proclamation. So it had those effects. But it immediately followed, as we have learned in our history, various efforts to undo uh, the effects of the 13th Amendment that certainly Mississippi was among uh, the states uh, that led the way in that opposition. But there were others, and it took another 150 years to move toward what Lincoln might have envisioned. It's not clear to me, ultimately, the effect of the Emancipation Proclamation as a practical matter in any of the southern states in the short run anyway. Even when we get to the Juneteenth order that someone in our group is going to talk about, that order uh, and the circular that came with it was really uh, restrictive, and it depended upon the general to personally travel to the interior of Texas to uh, make that known. Keep in mind that there was no telephone, there were no radio stations, there were no broadcast stations to inform uh, people affected by this that Lincoln had signed and formally uh, adopted the Emancipation Proclamation document. And we are talking about people who had been forbidden to learn to read and write. So knowing of it required people to be told by the people who held them in bondage and or the advancing of the Union Army and the Union Army uh, communicating that. Uh, so its, its effect was not immediate and its effects were short-lived as we are going to learn. I'd, I'd like to can put some context into this and read from the circular that was distributed by the general who we properly give credit to for the order that someone is going to talk about in Texas. But 
in short, all persons formerly slaves are earnestly enjoined to remain with their masters under such contracts as may be made by them at the present time. Their own interests, as well as that of their former masters and other parties requiring their services, render such a course necessary and of vital importance until such arrangements can be made under the auspices of the Freedmen's Bureau. It must be borne in mind in this connection that cruel and improper treatment are not permissible. However, no persons who were formerly slaves will be permitted to travel in the public thoroughfares without passes from their employer and may not congregate in buildings adjacent to the military or elsewhere. So the effect of the Emancipation Proclamation depended on the military and the military circular I just read to you and the compliance of others. And that's why I say it was a long time coming and short-lived because of what happened that immediately followed and continued to be the case in the Southern states uh, for another hundred years, another century. Thank you, Lindbergh. Your explanation of that document, that flyer, really kind of shows a situation of what you give with the left hand, you can take away with the right hand. Thanks for sharing that with us. Again, that is something that is, uh, I don't think, widely known within the context of this entire issue. Latoy Mayo, both Lindbergh and Deoncia talked about the scope of the Emancipation Proclamation, and it struck me, you're in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Can you explain exactly what was the impact of the Emancipation Proclamation in the Commonwealth of Kentucky and other border states? Great question. The Emancipation Proclamation that President Lincoln issued in September of 1862 and that went into effect on January 1st, 1863, promised an end to slavery, quote, within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, end quote. That is, Lincoln made clear that if rebelling states, those part of the Confederate States of America, did not rejoin the Union, then he would empower the U.S. military to free enslaved people as they recaptured ground during the American Civil War. Only those states in open rebellion against the U.S. were subject to the proclamation. As Amy Morell Taylor covers in her prize-winning book, Embattled Freedom, Journeys Through the Civil War Slave Refugee Camps, the Emancipation Proclamation expressly excluded enslaved people who lived in border states like Kentucky and areas occupied by the Union Army like Maryland, Missouri, Delaware, and parts of Tennessee. As a result, the Emancipation Proclamation made the Civil War as a matter of policy and not just personal conviction, a war to end slavery. For the Commonwealth of Kentucky, the story of emancipation is even more of a prolonged case. Kentucky did not secede from the U.S. and remained in the Union during the Civil War. In fact, Kentuckians fought on both sides of the American Civil War, making the Commonwealth of Kentucky the site of armed conflict. Within Kentucky's borders, self-emancipated people sought refuge at contraband camps in hopes of living free when the war ended. 
and enslaved African-American men gained freedom through service with the Union Army once all restrictions on enlistment were removed in June of 1864. Initially established as a Union Army supply depot and hospital, Camp Nelson, which is located along the Lexington-Danville Turnpike and adjacent to the Kentucky River, right in central Kentucky, was one of the largest recruitment and training centers for African-American soldiers during the Civil War. And it served as a refugee camp for their wives and children. Thousands of enslaved African-Americans risked their lives escaping to the camp located within the slaveholding state of Kentucky with the hope of securing their freedom and ultimately controlling their futures by contributing to the destruction of slavery. More than 500 US colored troops mustered into service during June 1864 and a record 1,370 new troops enlisted at the camp in July. By the time the 13th Amendment was finally ratified on December 6, 1865, ending slavery throughout the United States, roughly 10,000 African-American men had enlisted and claimed their freedom at Camp Nelson. Camp Nelson represents the courage and determination of formerly enslaved African-Americans to secure their own emancipation. It also illustrates the nation's struggle to define the meaning of freedom during and after the Civil War in the Emancipation Proclamation. Indeed, in certain parts of Western Kentucky, some African-American communities recognize August 8th and other dates, like in December, to mark emancipation. According to oral histories, news of the Emancipation Proclamation arrived in the western part of the Kentucky region in 1863, and is yet another example of how African Americans fashioned freedom for themselves despite enslavers who worked to keep them enslaved, even before and after the 13th Amendment went to the states for ratification, since Kentucky did not ratify it. Instead, a federal law forced enslavers in Kentucky to emancipate enslaved people in December of 1865, when the 13th Amendment had the approval of three-fourths of the states. Kentucky symbolically ratified the 13th Amendment in 1976. However, its enslaved residents recognized and took their own steps towards freedom initially upon news of the Emancipation Proclamation beginning in 1863. Thank you, Latoy, for sharing that very special history with regard to the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Charles, now I understand that this concept of the celebration of Juneteenth actually has its origins in the state of Texas, which was one of the states that was impacted on its face by the Emancipation Proclamation. But why is this celebration only occurring in 1865 if what I understand is, is that the Emancipation Proclamation occurred in 1863? Well, thanks, Paul. Uh, that's an excellent question. I had that question myself when I moved to Texas in 1993 and learned about the origins of Juneteenth and the celebrations that commenced pretty much every year from 1865. But like Lindbergh mentioned, it really had to do with how fast news traveled. And combined with the fact that even though the Emancipation Proclamation was effective June 1st, 1863, 
news could not travel very fast. We didn't have phones, obviously. We didn't have internet. We did not have newspapers. And I think also importantly, uh, many of the slaves were not allowed to read. So you, you, you combine that with the fact that the Civil War wasn't really over January 1st, 1863, and the Emancipation Proclamation had to rely on the enforcement, its enforcement through Union troops. The news slowly and inconsistently spread through the Confederate slave states. And I think another very important reason why the celebration, you know, the first celebration was not until 1865, was because of where Texas was geographically. Uh, it's a very large state, as you know, but at that particular time, Texas was probably, well, it was, it was the most remote state from the rest of the Eastern coast states in, in the nation at the time. And among the Confederate states, it was considered a safe haven for a lot of slave owners, particularly during civil war, the Civil War. And during that period of time, for example, by 1860, more than a thousand slaves, you know, that migrated with their owners from states like Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, migrated to Galveston and Houston and lived there. By 1865, there were about 250,000 enslaved people in Texas spread out throughout different cities and counties. So because of the, you know, unfortunately slow way in which the Union Army had to enforce the proclamation and the fact that the war didn't come to an end really until 1865 when, when Robert Lee surrendered on April 9th, 1865, and then almost two months later, the Western Army of the Trans-Mississippi didn't surrender on June 2nd. You had this very inconsistent enforcement of the document that Deoncia was talking about. But lo and behold, eventually on June 19th, 1865, Union Major General Gordon Granger arrives in Galveston, Texas. Uh, and he joins about 2,000 uh, newly arrived federal troops. And the purpose he's here, therefore, is to enforce the Emancipation Proclamation. And so he arrives in Galveston, which is right off the, the Gulf Coast, and they march. They march on uh, an area in Galveston called the Strand, uh, eventually reaching a church, which is now called Reedy Chapel AME Church. And back then, it, it was called the Negro Church on Broadway. And they announce the Emancipation Proclamation. And General Granger did it through what's called the Executive Order or General Order Number Three. And to kind of segue off of what Lindbergh was talking about in terms of military media and announcements, I'm going to read a short passage from that order. Uh, it reads, the people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the Executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. And in connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired labor. So to Lindbergh's point, you've got executive order number three saying, hey, everyone's free, but the freedmen are advised to remain quietly at their present homes and to work for their wages. 
They're not allowed to collect at military posts and they won't be supported in any idleness either. So even, even with the good news that General Granger was delivering, there's, there's still a little bit of uh, inconsistency and you know, somewhat hypocrisy, some might say. But despite all of that, that day it's reported when General Granger was there in Galveston, that same day, uh, the celebration started. So they started in Galveston with a number of folks celebrating in churches. They would celebrate by the shore. But even though those celebrations were occurring in Galveston, Texas is a big place. So the news that General Granger delivered in Galveston did not immediately reach other areas in Texas. And in fact, a number of plantation owners throughout Texas outside of Galveston they were, I mean, it wasn't uncommon for them to delay breaking the news to the individuals that they enslaved until, for example, after the next harvest. So, so you had good news that was still slow to reach all areas of Texas, but it was good news nonetheless. And so the first celebration starts June 19th, 1865. And the next year, uh, an organized group of uh, freedmen, they formally organized celebrations uh, in Texas, in Galveston, uh, and it's called Jubilee Day. So for years following June 19th, 1865, Juneteenth was first known as Jubilee Day until sometime in the 1890s, it became Juneteenth. And the folks in Texas celebrated at churches, they celebrated in parks that they had to purchase because at the time, if you can imagine, due to state law, they weren't allowed to hold celebrations in public state parks. So what would often happen is that groups of you know, African-Americans would purchase land. Uh, and in fact, in Houston, there's a place called Emancipation Park that was purchased in 1872 uh, for the price of $1,000 for 10 acres. And it's still there today. It wasn't called Emancipation Park at the time, but now it is. But that was purchased so that there could be places for celebrations of Juneteenth. And the celebrations eventually e evolved into uh, other forms such as rodeo uh, or baseball games. And of course, they would, there would be huge gatherings at churches. There would be breakfast prayer meetings. And so that is the journey and the road uh, of how you know, Juneteenth started and why we celebrate it today. Thank you much, Charles, for that explanation. Again, I think what each of you have done here today is to rely on, as Ziancia pointed out from the very beginning, that we do as lawyers, rely on documents. Uh, documents that show this journey from the beginning of slavery here, the attempt to emancipate the slaves in the United States, uh, and the many hiccups that came along the way. Lindbergh, are there states that recognize the Juneteenth holiday? Yes, Paul. At this point, there are 47 states that recognize the Juneteenth holiday, including my home state of Mississippi. The, the three states that do not are the two Dakotas, North and South, and Hawaii. The recognition of Juneteenth is very important. 
it is to Black folk what Frederick Douglass might have thought of as the 4th of July to others. Some of us will remember his uh, 5th of July speech, uh, what to me is the 4th of July, Frederick Douglass being the uh, former enslaved person and great abolitionist uh, in speaking about that. And so the Juneteenth recognition festival celebration to Black folk is very, very important. And as Charles covered, it is the time when Black folk learned of the Emancipation Proclamation. And it has been a long time coming. And I'm very happy that our firm is recognizing that um, many of the things that we recognize and celebrate uh, seem to, I don't mean not we the firm, but we as a nation, uh, short-lived. Uh, I hope that our recognition and of this as a holiday and celebration of it is not short-lived because of its importance to the nation's history, reflecting the reality of the American history. That's a very good point, Lindbergh, and thanks for uh, sharing that additional information with us. So I want to thank each of you for participating. I want to thank everyone for listening to our podcast today regarding Juneteenth. Please recognize and celebrate this important day in American history while being mindful that there's still a lot more to do. Thank you. Thank you.